A common scene in technology companies everywhere. Big conference table with the CTO on one end, developer teams on the other, the showdown. We have an idea, will it get funded? More companies are feeling the pressure to go faster and stay ahead of the competition. Projects that have long timelines or no immediate impact are hard to justify. Datastax is sponsoring a contest with real projects, real money, and real CTOs. If you have a Kubernetes project that needs a database, the winner will get funded with a free year of Datastax Astra. Follow the link in the podcast description to submit your project. It's time to impress the CTO and get your project funded. Eyes glazed over from debugging a remote Kubernetes service? Instead, run your service locally in your favorite debugger and instantly find the problem. Ambassador Telepresence is the easiest way to debug microservices on Kubernetes. Spend more time fixing problems instead of reproducing them. Ambassador Telepresence is free to use for teams with unlimited developers. Get started today at getambassador.io slash devdiscuss. Educative.io is a hands-on learning platform for software developers. Learn anything from Rust to system design without the hassle of setup or videos. Text-based courses let you easily skim back and forth like a book, while cloud-based developer environments let you get your hands dirty without fiddling with an IDE. Take your skills to the next level. Visit educative.io slash devdiscuss today to get a free preview and 10% off an annual subscription. Get ready to level up at New Relic's virtual event, FutureStack 2021, held May 25th through the 27th. Join your fellow data nerds from around the world to learn, inspire, and rack up experience in 50 interactive sessions, 12 hands-on labs, and a 24-hour hackathon. FutureStack is your cheat code for observability. Engineers from across the industry will lead you through topics like Kubernetes, DevOps strategies, and observability. Then join us to relax with some Minecraft on Nerd Island. Registration is free at futurestack.com. Game on. I really like to see technology solve problems and in a way that is not disruptive in a bad way and a way that, you know, violates people's rights and harms people. Welcome to Dev Discuss, the show where we cover the burning topics that affect all our lives as software developers. I'm Ben Halpern, a co-founder of Dev. And I'm Jess Lee, also a co-founder of Dev. Today we're talking about ethics and code with Nashley Cephas, Applied Science Manager at Amazon Web Services AI, and Abram Walton, Director of the Center for Lifecycle and Innovation Management and former Director for the Center of Ethics and Leadership at Florida Tech. Thank you both so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Thank you for having us. So, Nashley, you have a very interesting background in machine and learning and AI. Can you tell us a little bit about what you have been doing and how you ended up at Amazon? I started somewhat in a non-traditional way into Amazon. I was the CTO of a startup company called Partpick that was acquired by Amazon. I was one of the stakeholders, and so we were able to sell the company. Partpick basically did visual search for replacement parts. So we would train artificial intelligence and computer vision models to recognize and measure parts by taking a picture of it or taking a video. And so I was presenting about that in Boston in in May of 2016, and Amazon was in the audience. And one thing led to another, and it happened. So it was kind of just nothing we were really expecting. It just kind of all just happened. And before that, I did my undergrad in computer engineering at Mississippi State University. 
and I did my PhD in computer engineering at Georgia Tech. So how has your role evolved since you've been at AWS? What exactly does an applied science manager do? So I've done uh, the whole gamut. I've managed people, engineers, I've managed scientists, I've managed data analysts, because of course in machine learning and artificial intelligence, there's a lot of data involved in cleaning up the data, sanitizing the data, labeling, annotating. I've been there a little over three and a half years now. And so first two and a half years, I worked on the visual search team. So if you've ever used the Amazon shopping app, you can open it and click on the camera button and it'll help you search for whatever you take a picture of. And so we worked on that. And then I switched to the AWS, which is Amazon Web Services AI team a little over a year and a half ago, where I focus on fairness and biases in AI technology. And it's been pretty interesting. I'm, I'm actually not managing people now. I do have a summer intern, but I'm more so an individual contributor at this point. Did you trigger the move into fairness and bias in AI, or was that asked of you based on your prior work? Well, it started with a conversation that I was having with a speaker at a conference. It was an internal conference on computer vision. And I remember sitting down and talking with this individual, and we we just started talking about the current state of, of things, especially face recognition technology, face analysis, and search results and speech analysis and how some of these things could be affected, you know, by various types of biases that get introduced. And so one thing led to another and they were offering me a job. (laughs) And so that's kind of how it happened. Uh, Was again, another situation where I wasn't planning on switching teams. It's kind of good to know just being me, people can see some potential and and they, you know, are interested in helping me further, you know, my skills. And so I, I really appreciate that. Abram, can you tell us about? So interesting center. I think uh, Nashley asked about Harris before we started the call. Mm-hmm. And companies like Harris, and now it's L3 Harris, big tech firms, they were the leaders of, of coming to folks like myself and other industry experts and saying, you know, we really want to discuss and push ethical considerations and mindsets and frameworks down into the collegiate level, but also why don't we start even earlier and go into the high school level? And so there was sort of a flavor of things we did over the years. You know, we had, I guess, your smaller events like luncheons, guest speakers, and I'll give you a couple ideas of what we covered there, up to half-day, full-day conferences. That, and again, largely this is either high schooler-focused or collegiate student-focused, all the way from you know undergraduate to grad, and then and then and then inclusion of faculty as well as as industry. So we usually had really good attendance, several hundred people in attendance at every event. And then we ended up doing a, once a year, we did what's called a high school ethics competition. So we actually threw well over $100,000 in scholarships and awards to the high school teams to give them some really difficult scenarios and usually involving some hot topics. So it could be tech, it could be something international or something that was recently in the news. And we'd give them Within one day, they'd read the case, they'd analyze the case, they'd make their recommendations, and then they they would present to a board of experts. And this board of experts usually included, you know, maybe chief legal counsel in this case, like for Harris. Harris was a major contributor. They were always there as a judge. So that's sort of the, 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 I guess, the breadth of what we did. I can get into technical, more specific things if you have questions. So it seems like ethics... It's something that is really becoming more at the forefront of discussions within the tech industry. I want to hear both of your takes on our current state of ethics within tech. 
Sure, sure. That is a big topic. And so <laughs> I will start with, of course, my lane, which is um, artificial intelligence, machine learning. As a producer and a developer of this technology, as well as a consumer, you know, I see many different angles. I see the concerns that people have about their rights and their privacy being violated with certain technologies, for example, face recognition, face analysis, several software products, even data breaches and Facebook, for example, um, you know, what are they doing with your data? And then, of course, I'm also a technologist who I really like to see technology solve problems and in a way that is not disruptive in a bad way and a way that, you know, violates people's rights and harms people. And so it often becomes a thin line. And some people would say, okay, don't sell the technology. Let's not partake in the technology. Let's regulate it better. And then on the other hand, once you release, you know, software or products, it's often very hard to enforce people not using it anymore once it's out there, which this is an actual case with Flickr, training models with faces of people who have not agreed to be, you know, <laughs> trained with. And um, there were also some articles about, you know, people, for example, saw pictures of their kids in this photo database and, and they had no recollection of that prior to. Um, there's a New York Times article that says over 50% of the people in the United States, your face has already been used in some database for machine learning and AI, whether you know it or not. And those numbers actually increase in places overseas. And so what we've done is, is we've built things that people thought were cool, but now we're running into issues to where it's not just a matter of, hey, can we do it or not? Should we do it? And that takes a lot of different people. It takes different stakeholders. It takes public policy. It takes government. It takes legal. And, and PR certainly has a, a lot to do with it as well. For example, if, if things and narratives are being pushed that are not true, you know, that's of concern. And then if there are narratives that are that are revealing and, and, and more transparent that companies are wanting to not be transparent for whatever reason, then that's that's definitely a problem, too. And so this is the current state. Um, that's kind of like my day to day and the things that I, I think about and deal with um, on my job. I'm wondering where everyone on this call falls on the spectrum between techno optimism and pessimism, because I feel like that tends to inform, you know, how people think, you know, if you're overly optimistic, you're maybe unwilling to have this discussion. But if you're overly pessimistic, you might be too quick to shut things down in a way that might not be helpful. So naturally, where do you fall on the spectrum? How do you feel about tech in general? So I, I believe that technology can help a lot of people. I do believe that more thought and, and measures have to put in place before releasing these technologies and involving a wider group of people. And, you know, that's something that government is now listening to. A lot of corporations are now listening about diversity and inclusion in technology. Also, you know, businesses and entrepreneurs and, and funds and funding for certain startups and, and technology and innovation. People are realizing that the systematic, you know, racism that can exist there. And the same exact thing goes with technology. It is not exempt and it should be considered in the same exact way. And I think what you're seeing right now, people are finally starting to at least one, listen and hear the other side of the story, and then two, take more action and not just stand by. So again, I think I'm definitely 
on the spectrum of let's hear what both sides have to say and make sure that we're considering all things. And we want to make sure that the technology is fair and unbiased. You know, some, sometimes biases are preferred depending on the on the use case. But if that's not the case, then we need to make sure that one, we're ethically sourcing data. Two, we're testing it on a fair amount and very diverse set of test population. And that we have certain government regulations to say, hey, this is not okay to do. And so I think we still have quite a, a ways to go. I'm in support of halting any sales on anything that needs to be halted until we figure those other pieces out. I like, uh, actually, one of our last comments there about ethically source data, because like in the academic world, we do studies all the time and we have to go through what's called an institutional review board, where if we're collecting data that's not fully innocuous, anonymous, and de-identified, then we have to provide and obtain informed consent authorization from participants. And whether it's Anything from just a how do you feel about something survey to, you know, let me do some medical testing on you. You have to do this fully informed consent. And I, you know, we see this in the tech world under user agreements and things like that. But, you know, when you unpack this ethically sourced data topic, which is interesting, it's very question begging. It's like, well, what exactly does that mean? Because especially in, in the tech world, I think a lot of us can look at things and go, well, I know how that could be used. And if it could be used that way, it probably will be used that way. And just because someone... You know, if they leave, let's say, an Instagram account that's open, that doesn't necessarily mean they hoped for someone to go make a deep fake using their pictures. For our audience that's not familiar with what a deep fake is, can you please explain? So for a deep fake, um, if I get enough pictures in enough different variations of their face, because if you think about it, what's on Instagram a lot of the time besides food is selfies. Right. So you get you get someone's facial shot over time from massive different amounts of angle, including video. And so you can put that into big, big data systems and train an AI system to basically create a video game of their face, but that looks and sounds real. And a deep fake just means it's so fake, it's deep. I mean, like it's it's deep all the way down through the essence of someone's, um, the way they say certain words, their various facial expressions, if they happen to have a twitch or a slur, or if they have an accent, I mean, it, it carries all that with it. So it's deep. So you know, ethically sourced data, I think, is critical. I, I tend to lean towards the more optimistic side. However, I know that there are people who will make the assumption that if you let yourself, you know, your your personal data or whatnot be openly shared, it's almost like they go, well, then they should have known better. They shouldn't have shared it publicly. This is what sort of vacillates me is to go, I think that the that it's incumbent, therefore, the responsibility on the tech side to go, the lay public really doesn't understand what they're sharing, let alone the downstream consequences, how it could later be likely used, let alone what, what what could happen with a picture I shared 10 years ago and maybe a deep fake later. I mean, like, because the idea of even deep fakes didn't exist in, in the level we're looking, we're seeing them now. So that's what I think builds this sort of vacillation. And I think what's more important, I, I would think I'd be leery of someone who sort of has a hard and fast, here's my belief on the thing. Every, you know, if you're going to release something, you should accept fully the consequences. Well, because What's possible with tech does change over time, and therefore the consequence potential, I think, changes over time. And so I think we need to be consistently aware of and reflective on and then also communicative of uh, towards the users. One use case of deep fakes that is somewhat controversial as well, but it's, it seemed in general seemed as a more positive case, is all this data that we're needing to diversify our, our, our face recognition training and testing data sets. You know, if we can create diverse set of fake faces 
of various skin tones, various ethnicities, different age groups, then perhaps we could improve our uh, machine learning models without having to get data unethically from from other sources or potentially, you know, purchase it some other way. And so that is one use case that that people use to try to improve their models. And that's something that's an ongoing field of study that hasn't really, you know, proven. I mean, there's there's some studies that have been proven successful, some that have not. But I think you'll see a lot more of that come in the future. Sick of your laptop overheating every time you try to run your Kubernetes application locally? With Ambassador Telepresence, you can intercept your services on your local machine so that you can develop on your services as if your laptop was running in the cluster. Never worry about running out of memory again, no matter how complex your Kubernetes application gets. Ambassador Telepresence is free to use for teams with unlimited developers. Get started today at getambassador.io slash devdiscuss. New Relic's application monitoring platform gives you detailed performance metrics for every aspect of your software environment. Manage application performance in real time, troubleshoot problems in your stack, and move beyond traditional monitoring with New Relic 1, your complete software observability solution. Get started for free at developer.newrelic.com. To connect with the team behind New Relic directly, join the Relicans. The Relicans is a new community hub designed to help developers create cool projects, inspire one another, level up, and learn in public. You can start a discussion about your favorite programming language, ask a question about software observability, share a tutorial, and lots more. Join today at therelicans.com. Where do you think regulation comes into play when we're talking about these problems? Some of the things we've discussed can be exceptionally harmful. And if we're talking about data sourcing and privacy, that's an obvious area where laws tend to come into play. How do you think that should be handled? So I've been to Capitol Hill a couple of times, speaking with members of various organizations and Congress, policymakers. What I've found is that majority of these people, and, and I'm, it's totally understandable, they really don't understand how the technology works. And that's something that I never really thought about, uh, you know, as an engineer, as a technologist, having been around engineers most of the time at work and at school and graduate school. And then to turn around and say, okay, you have to communicate why people think that this technology doesn't work to someone who doesn't even know uh, who has no background in technology whatsoever is probably an older individual who is probably not as tech savvy. And how do you break it down? And, and then on top of that, coming from a place like Amazon, for example, we're often seen in a light that isn't as positive for for a number of, of an issues. And so what what credibility do you even have coming from a company like that? And so my job was very interesting in having to figure out how to break these concepts down, make it easy to talk to, which is something that I've kind of been doing. I, I mean, when I talk to my grandmother and my mother and I tell them about what I do, you know, that's that's some practice that I, I've gotten, you know, throughout my life. And so I had to adjust slightly. I also had to paint a different picture. We're also combating a lot of what the PR has already 
mustered up for people. And so it can be quite difficult. And so I totally understand the challenges here with the legislators. And I think that we still have a responsibility. The, all the technology developers and, and the companies, the industries has a responsibility to answer to these people and to help them understand why this is or isn't a concern. That was exactly where my mind went first. The whole scenario you just unpacked was <laughs> I like I uh, I watched some videos sometimes on Capitol Hill of people trying to explain. I just love this one. It's a kind of famous one where they were grilling Zuckerberg on well, how exactly does it make money <laughs> when you do try to break it down on that level? What you end up with sometimes is producing in their mind an embodiment of what the tech is doing. But I think we have to be careful because I think quintessentially. When we're trying to explain just what it does, it can sometimes produce a little bit of fear, like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe they can do that with my photo, and I never wanted them to do that. And before you know it, people have knee-jerk reacted to that spectrum that was introduced earlier, and they became this, like, the shut it down, let's legislate like crazy, without even fully understanding, let alone understanding the value trade-off. So I think that when we're talking about informed consent and these ethical sourcing of data and whatnot, is if personalizable information or what we might consider private information is being provided and or used, I think businesses would just do better, quite frankly, up front if they better explicated or explained what the value trade-off was. So for instance, when it became clear that cookies were first tracking your movements on the internet, people used to turn them off. And then and even now, if you don't turn on certain features in, in your map functions, you're not your map's not going to produce for you really what could be considered valuable results. Like if you happen to like pizza, every time you go by this particular area in town, every time you pull your map up, it shows you pizza locations. Well, it only knows that because you've sort of trained it, right? But then as soon as you tell someone you're training something, they get scared. But that's the whole lack of informed consent, if you will. And now you try and explain this to lawmakers who are, you know, decades behind on the other end of things, like what what kind of advice do you have for everyday developers that want to think more critically about the ethical impact of their work? Consider all the viewpoints. I think oftentimes as technologists, sometimes we can get very ego driven and thinking that our opinion is the only opinion that matters. And, you know, consider what are the implications? One thing we do at work is that we do what we call an exercise where we work backwards and we say, what is the worst thing that could happen? So like, what would be the worst possible headline to come out in the news based on, you know, this product that we're trying to conceptualize? And then we work backwards from there to make sure that that doesn't happen. I think also when you're learning how to develop these various types of uh, technologies, you know, read more into not just the the technology side, but, but read about some of the policy and the, and the legal issues around it. And even if there's, there's not any of that, you know, we consider other institutions, like, for example, the Brookings Institution, the Human-Centered AI at Stanford. These are organizations that try to raise awareness for all these other topics that come around the technologies that we think are just, you know, simple, carefree technologies. And so I would, I would just say do your research. And Abram, as an academic, what would you do to create the perfect CS curriculum that would have ethics and code as a requirement look like? You know, I think what the literature shows is pretty clear that it's actually more financially beneficial. Companies are more successful when they upfront and intentionally incorporate ethical frameworks into their thinking and their people individually. And also corporately, there are structures that employ them. 
And so we had built relationships across campus where faculty would give credit for or would use some of the cases that we had employed in our programs at the center into their courses. And so we helped build them, even just these plug and play modules that you can go into any tech course. So, I mean, because I actually used to be a professor in industrial engineering and technology. And so we would do the same thing. We would say, okay, if you're building a program and you submit, let's say, a user report or a technical document or whatnot, we would ask them things like, you know, and actually gave a good example. What's the worst headline that can come out of this? The, the more they get used to thinking like that at an early basis and understanding that companies are going to hire for that, that you can bake that into the curriculum, that it should be a repeated thing. If, if I'll tell you what one of the worst things you, you can do, and you see this at some universities, if they have a single course on ethics and that's the only portion of ethics that a curriculum contains, that is not doing it. Because then students go in, they think ethically for this one class and one semester, and, and everywhere else is devoid from it. And instead, what the literature shows and the sciences has been pretty clear on this is that the universities and programs that are putting out the thinkers, the, the, the thought leaders around ethics in tech, have a module. And it doesn't have to be huge on every class, but, but where in every assignment that you, can, that you possibly can, that even if it's a five-minute conversation around ethical considerations around what if? What's worst case scenarios? How could this data be misused if it was maintained for a long time? And there's a lot. I mean, you look at airplane, the data on airplanes are kept for 100 years. The data on other things are only kept for a couple of weeks. And one of the modules we had was the idea of unintended consequences is kind of a farce. So you can have undesirable yet intended consequences. And we see this in, in, in dirty areas like war. Some people call it collateral damage. And that would be an undesirable yet yet intended, meaning it's like, I'm, I'm still going to go forward with it. But what happens is that programmers use the phrase unintended consequence as a lazy way to say, I didn't have the skill set, desire, time, or take the effort to forwardly think about the foreseeable consequences. And therefore, I call them unintended. But the reality is, if I had just taken the time, I could have foreseen them. And then they would have might have been undesirable. but still intended. A lot of the times that we see what people call unintended consequences are just because they were too lazy to think down the road. Because if they had noticed what those consequences would have been, they might not have proceeded otherwise. And if we can bake that into computer science curriculum on on a variety of projects, and I'll tell you one that we've done, and I think every university that's worth their credentials, is they have a senior design program. And our students go through that. Senior design, is usually it's a year-long project. You're programming something, you're building some app, whatever it may be. And that the judging, the output requirements and the winning teams have to have considered, discussed, and presented on what are the ethical ramifications. And again, in, in the room on the panel are sitting judges saying, you know, did you think about how this data could be used in 10 years? So I think there's a couple keys there. It can't just be one class. It has to be embedded throughout and promoted by faculty who have enough industry experience to give legitimate reasons why things can go wrong. My recollection about the way ethics was taught to me in the CS that I did take was that it really varied professor to professor how much they thought ethics was a thing. You know, some people kind of were dismissive and some people it was more ingrained depending on their particular perspectives. But no matter what, it always seemed a little abstract. It rarely was speaking to truly affected people. It was always a lot, you know, pretty high level, pretty academic. And and I, I think we could stand to make it a little bit more personal and human. I think things are definitely going that way in the mainstream. I wonder if, if academia is making things a little bit more 
concrete in that way. Well, that's a good point. When you mentioned that it's pretty academic, there's a reason for that. The teaching, the contextualization, and the relevancy provided around why ethics matters is sort of bifurcated. So you end up with academics who probably went, you know, bachelor's, master's, PhD, I'm going to teach, you know, in a, in a university. How many products and systems did they ever really fully put out that went to market that blew up in their face or that or to which they attached the reputation and later down the road had to respond to a board on unintended consequences? But what we found then is that typically the better educators on the topic are people who have industry experience, which is why what we're seeing is a growing number of firms like Harris or now L3 Harris coming in and sponsoring these sort of things where they want to be integrated because they've got money behind scholarships. They've got money behind Award programs for senior design, they, you know, they're offering, you know, jobs to a lot of people. And part of the interview process is, hey, have you ever participated in or how many did you participate in of the ethical seminars or competitions or things like that? So you have it being taught from a more pragmatic standpoint. They're coming in and they're helping build these modules. Again, they're plug and play. We're not talking massive numbers of hours because I know tech programs are very lengthy, 140 hours for a bachelor's degree type thing. We're talking five minutes minor things on every assignment, but also these sort of extracurricular things, because otherwise you end up with what you mentioned, uh, an academically abstract, esoteric sort of an approach, which then students can't go apply. Yeah, you consider, you know, those who, for example, are probably listening to this podcast may not even necessarily have, you know, a formal educational background. Maybe they're boot campers or, or self-taught learners. Um, we run across a lot of those. And, you know, you think about, you know, how are they applying these ethics and and considering, you know, privacy issues. And it is definitely something that, you know, and maybe there are programs out there uh, that I'm just not aware of, but I think there's definitely um, a blind spot in our tech community that needs to be addressed. Yeah, I mean, as the bootcamp grad, grad that you're describing, we didn't talk about ethics at once in my program. Well, again, that's a fantastic point between the two of you. And, and the key is just like corporate culture, corporate culture either happens intentionally by the founding group or accidentally by all the people that are a part of it to ultimately build the company. Well, what we have to realize is that everybody, whether from their background, their socioeconomic status, their religious affiliation, if any, you know, their previous work experience, their educational constructs and so forth, they're all going to carry with them into a workplace a unique ethical framework. For instance, are you utilitarianist? Are you about fairness? And even if you say you're about fairness, are you about equality of opportunity or equality of outcome, right? So if a company doesn't intentionally sort of craft and communicate their ethical framework that they want their people to espouse to and adhere to and, and promote, then they kind of leave it to an accidental development. Nashley, is that something you deal with a lot at AWS, just managing these different individual ethical frameworks? Yeah, yeah, no, I think, you know, like, like you said, it happens everywhere. Um, you can't really get around that. I mean, that's, that's the beauty of having a diverse team too, you know, every, all these different backgrounds and perspectives coming together. And I'll always say this, you know, some things are, are good grassroots movements, but some things have to be top down mandated. I think ethics is one of them. Ethics, diversity and inclusion. Those are things that everyone across the company has to be in sync on no matter what your background or, or history is. How much responsibility do you feel like individual developers have to inform the greater populace about any ethical concerns within their product? I, mean, I think in general, the bigger the corporation, 
the more revenue you're generating, the more responsibility you have to um, correct things that may not even be associated with you. Um, right now, you're seeing a lot of people and industries involved with Black Lives Matter and openly speaking out against racism. I mean, I, I personally believe it it ties into revenue and it helps things overall. Of course, that's what I believe in. That's what I'm passionate about. But not everyone believes that. And so, you know, in essence, they're taking responsibility on things that don't necessarily affect them directly. And I think, again, the bigger the voice you have, the bigger the platform, it's important to speak up and, and stand up against these things. And so I've noticed that I have a lot more influence than I thought. And I think in general, you know, coming through undergrad, grad school, startup life, and now, you know, at a big corporation, you know, I haven't had the, the most pleasant experience every time, oftentimes being the only one, only female, maybe only person of color. And so I think it's important to get a good support system and also know how inf- how influential you are. So recently, you know, I've been, you know, crafting letters and emails to certain org leaders and not just at my company, but at other places too. And I've had some really positive responses back. And even before, for example, COVID and before the um, protests and everything. And so it, it is definitely our responsibility as technologists, it's our responsibility as large corporations and industries to just help things in general. We can do a lot better. Chances are, like other software developers, you learn better by doing than just watching. Unfortunately, most online learning platforms still have you passively sit through videos instead of actually getting your hands dirty. Educative.io is different. Their courses are interactive and hands-on with live coding environments inside your browser so you can practice as you go. They're also text-based, meaning you can skim back and forth like a book to the parts you're interested in. Step up your learning in 2021. Visit educative.io slash devdiscuss today to get a free preview and 10% off of an annual subscription. A common scene in technology companies everywhere. Big conference table with the CTO on one end, developer teams on the other, the showdown. We have an idea, will it get funded? More companies are feeling the pressure to go faster and stay ahead of the competition. Projects that have long timelines or no immediate impact are hard to justify. Datastax is sponsoring a contest with real projects, real money, and real CTOs. If you have a Kubernetes project that needs a database, the winner will get funded with a free year of Datastax Astra. Follow the link in the podcast description to submit your project. It's time to impress the CTO and get your project funded. Now we're going to move into a segment where we look at responses that you, the audience, have sent us to a question we made in relation to this episode. The question we asked you all was, where do you think ethics in tech is falling short? Ryan responded, I think it is falling short on fact-checking misinformation and disinformation. Facebook has recently taken a stance to not show an alert on content that could be misleading. It may not change everyone's opinion, but it would be a step in the right direction to have public figures be fact-checked. The anti-vaccination movement may not be a thing if fact-checking had been in place when it gained traction. 
So I think misinformation and disinformation is a tech problem in that these are things that can scale up on platforms like a Facebook. It just didn't exist that you could infiltrate you know, an entire populace with disinformation in the same way. But this is also very mainstream in that I think the average citizen understands this problem perhaps a little bit better than they understand issues of informed consent around data sources and things like that. So where do you think mainstream issues fall in terms of the conversation about ethics versus some of the issues that are only discussed among, you know, more technically informed individuals? It's interesting how even in the question, you called it a tech technical issues or tech issue. And I think you could conjecture that that's really a societal issue that happens to be, uh, and you could argue it's either exacerbated or enabled, or it becomes more obvious that it occurs because not only do we see it becoming exacerbated, but we're more aware of it because of the a feedback loop is created whereby we can actually collect data on and see what's going on. But if you think about it, the fact that people chose to live in their own echo chambers is not new to society. Before platforms like Facebook and, and other social media things, it was not a new thing that people made their own personal choice by what medium they're going to consume their quote-unquote news or information. Maybe I always got I got the word from Brother Johnny down the street. I mean, you know, see what I'm saying? So I could I could have created my own echo chamber before social media platforms. It's just that the, the, the sheer vast number of people who do it and where and how they do that, it wasn't as transparent. We didn't have data on it to show that people had their own echo chambers. And so now the fact that Facebooks and others, and I'm not just trying to pick on Facebook, but that these are enabling platforms to allow for that, provide or almost necessitate this conversation to say, hey, since we're now one of the mediums through which these echo chambers continue to be created, what do we do about it? And do we have a moral obligation to it? Do we have a virtuous obligation to it? Or is it purely utilitarianism? So that kind of goes back to your framework, your own mental model and ethical framework. And some people will say we absolutely have an obligation to it. Well, if you have an obligation now, did you have the obligation before to go correct other people's echo chambers? Well, we did at some degree. I mean, when those echo chambers resulted in, you know, racist organizations, then we we as society confronted that. But there is this threshold at which you say, you know what, you're allowed to be an ostrich and stick your head in the ground and, and really collect bad news, only up to the point that it doesn't have a negative effect on me, maybe. As our society has become more and more integrated, what constitutes a negative effect on me, because feedback loops are shortened, means that if you choose to stick your, he your head in the ground and, and have your own proprietary echo chamber, and then you affect society because you, let's just say you pick up bad driving habits like texting and driving, or let's say it's even worse than that and you're destroying property or whatever. The issue becomes how long or short is that feedback loop? And I think that helps us, whether consciously or not, determine the degree to which we believe we should intervene in people's decision of where to obtain news and what news they internally filter as appropriate or not. Let's move on to our next writer. Almanon wrote in, video game companies using loot boxes. It's basically unregulated gambling. I'm not against the idea of gambling in general, but it needs regulation to avoid companies taking advantage of people with addictive personalities. Again, I think that 
people developing technology have to be aware of policy and, and government and regulations and how this technology impacts people downstream. And I said it earlier, you know, think about what what is the worst that can happen with your technology um, before you build it. And then also consider all of the people, many, many of the people in public policy and in government are are not technical and they don't really understand the technology. So how can they begin to help people if they don't understand it? So I, I would encourage more people in technology to consider going into those fields. Um, you can also have joint positions, advisor positions for public policy. You can become an expert. There's different ways to get involved and to help influence these sort of regulations. So keep that in mind. And so that it actually is a perfect example of, of the sort of elongated answer I gave, which I took as a philosophical question, which is, okay, so it sounds like the person asking the question may or may not have a gambling concern, but maybe they have friends or family members who, you know, lost thousands of dollars to it. And so they feel that there should be a societal intervention to avoid having people who, to the question, are may, might have a gambling addiction becoming addicted to these things. So even though it was not a direct concern for the individual who asked the question, probably, I think the policymakers are trying to consider these things. JP wrote in, companies like Apple who are strongly fighting the idea of an open web and take 30% of their apps. This tech way of value-based pricing is extremely capitalistic and disrespectful to the people and developers. It's sad to see how cultish people follow tech trends like Apple because the majority of people know little to nothing about the field to have a solid opinion. Yeah, it's amazing about 14 years after this idea was first put into place, Apple is finally getting legit backlash over taking their 30% cut within the apps. And nothing changed. It was kind of a buildup of a lot of little frustrations. And then Basecamp came and and really complained loudly. And now it's more public conversation. And will that amount to anything? You know, Basecamp ultimately got allowed into the App Store. And for, for people who don't know, Basecamp basically had their app not accepted into the App Store because they were accepting payments off platform and and Apple wanted them to pay 30% and they disagreed and they ultimately went back and forth and they got allowed into the app store and cited precedent of other companies that were doing fine. But the broader question of, is it okay for a virtual monopoly to restrict the way developers develop on the platform like that? So Jan writes in basically that the list of ethically distasteful companies is very long, speaking of corporate giants, and they're often places people, quote, dream of working at. So, you know, that's companies like Amazon, Facebook, Google, Netflix, you know, you name the giant. Uh, Often these are, are places people dream of working at, and often they have a lot of practices which are, you know, ethically questioned. 